In this month of August, I'm using the opportunity to speak about a couple topics that we don't always get to. Last week on Communion Sunday, we spoke a little bit about communion itself and what it is to mean as far as union with Christ. You won't note it at this early service, but this month, three times at the 11 o'clock service, we're going to have baptisms, and that's just the way it's happened as families have chosen dates today and next Sunday and the 31st to bring children in baptism. And I felt that gave a good opportunity for me to raise the subject of baptism and speak about it both in a general way, which I will do more so today, and then in a little more specific way about baptism for the believer's child next Sunday. And even though that sacrament is not visibly before you at this service, I think it is important for you to understand these things and to think biblically, hopefully, about them. I'm going to read today from the book of Acts, chapter 2, famous and important chapter, as Peter is giving the first great apostolic sermon of the church on the day of Pentecost. I'm not going to read the entire sermon. In fact, I'm breaking in the middle of it to pick up the words of Peter, the apostle, at verse 29 of Acts 2, and I'll read through verse 41. Listen carefully to God's own holy word. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would his body see decay. And God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. May God use his word to instruct us and establish us in his will and in understanding before him. 
Now, you are accustomed to seeing me in the pulpit wearing the black robe that I wear every Sunday. If I didn't wear it, you'd wonder why. But you've never seen me, and probably never will see me, appearing before you in a white robe. But I did do this once, in public, at the front of a church. I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was 14 years old, and I was a candidate for baptism. Along with some friends of about that age, in the fall of 1963, I believe it was actually about two weeks before the Kennedy assassination, I came to the front of the Baptist church where I was a member or where I was becoming a member. Wearing my white robe, I walked down a few steps into a tank of water and took my pastor's hand, and he, as you well know, is done in a Baptist church, dunked me all the way under, and I got sopping wet in front of a congregation. That was a meaningful day in my life. It was a meaningful affirmation of my testimony of faith in Christ. I was old enough to understand and choose what I was doing in that act of Christian baptism, and it certainly was a legitimate way to be baptized. Now, Christian baptism should be an exciting time in any worship service. Whether we are welcoming a new adult member who has never been baptized and we are baptizing that one as a confirmation of that testimony of faith when that person says, yes, I have trusted Jesus as my Lord, and I'm obeying him in receiving this outer sign of the washing of sin, or whether we are welcoming a child of believers, and in that case, not affirming a personal testimony, but looking in hope for what we believe God will do as Christian families train up their children and present them to Christ, and they come to him one day for salvation. Any baptism should be a positive time for the church to celebrate. Unhappily, though, it's not always that, is it? You well know that Christians have struggled for centuries even to be reasonable in their dialogue on this subject. Baptism in the name of the Trinity is an important thing and a biblical thing, and yet if you would gather five Christians together in a room and start to talk about the subject, and if they would really be honest, you might find six different opinions represented by those five people. It's, it's actually tragic the way Christians have been divided by the subject of baptism. New denominations have started, and folks have said, well, Baptism has to be done our way or no way. And I think this is a tragic thing. God's people should not be divided over this subject. And yet we keep asking the questions, why do we baptize? What does it mean? Who should be baptized? How should it be performed? Does the Bible really even teach any clear doctrine in regard to this? Presbyterians in church history have always been one group of people who've more or less stood in the middle of the controversy, and we don't make it a fighting issue. As you probably know, we claim to recognize any and all Trinitarian baptisms performed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we don't have one way that we say it's our way or the highway. And we receive into membership those who are 
baptize in different ways, and those who may not even agree with the idea that believers' children should be baptized as a sign of the covenant. Now, I want to begin in a general fashion on this subject, and I really think the best beginning place always is this sermon of Peter's in the book of Acts where the commandment, repent and be baptized, comes forth for the very first time to any Christian audience. So Jesus has spoken it to the disciples as he was departing from them in the Great Commission, but this is the first time to, to would-be believers or the church as a whole that this is issued as a commandment. So I think it's a good springboard to begin and, and move through a few things to try to gather some understanding and hopefully some ability to have consensus on this subject, even though I know that'll never be perfectly achieved. I'm too much of a realist. I will lay down this broad background today, and then next week I want to move more distinctly into what the Scripture says about the baptism of believers' covenant children and why that's a special case. But first let's look at, and we're not yet even looking at Acts, let's take a step backwards from Acts and go back to Matthew for a minute that we spent so much time in, just briefly, to look at the example and the command of Jesus himself regarding baptism as a first point. And here I would point you to Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus opened his public ministry by submitting to a baptism administered by his cousin, the one we know as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. Now, John's baptism wasn't identical to Christian baptism. It was a kind of in-between ritual that stood a little bit really more in the Old Testament than in the New, that anticipated the coming of God's Messiah. It was a sign of ritually coming and recognizing your need to repent. And by doing that, to come into water of a river, it was natural water out there in the wilderness of Jerusalem and Judea, and whether John dunked people or not, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, The Bible doesn't actually tell us with certainty how he administered that baptism. But in some manner, they came to a river, and water was either poured over them or they might have been submerged in it, and everyone understood that symbol. It was an act of saying, I am sorry for my sin. I want a new beginning with God. And I rejoice that the power of God in his coming Messiah which was on the minds of these people, will bring me his salvation. It was being obedient to God. It was being humble before God. It was an outward act symbolizing an inward truth. Now, Jesus, of course, did not need repentance. He was without sin. So in that sense, he did not come to that baptism in the same way as anyone else. And John, you remember in Matthew 3 and the other Gospels, told him so. He said, Lord, I I should be baptized by you. This isn't right. But Jesus said, no, let it be. And we believe he was saying, let me set an example in this. Let me, if you consider that I am, and and he was, the sinless one, if, if I would do this as an example, then no one could come and say, I don't need to do that, when even the perfect one submitted to this symbol of humility before God. So Jesus himself there stood in the place of sinners, which he would do, of course, when he went to the cross as our substitute 
even though he was without sin. So we have the example of Jesus, but then we also have the command of Jesus, and this is at the end of Matthew, and we were just on this a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, I'll quickly remind you of these final instructions that Jesus gave before his ascension to heaven when he said, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Now, as far as we know, Jesus didn't go around baptizing people during his earthly ministry. And we don't even know that his, his disciples or apostles were actually baptizing people up to that point. And yet here he is giving his final instructions and says, as you go make disciples, baptize them. Now, if in this summer season your boss goes off on vacation for three weeks and you're put in charge of the entire business, maybe as the second in command, I hope you would be a person that would pay attention to his instructions. If he goes out the door saying, now be sure you do this, or if this happens, be sure this happens, you ought to make note of that and pay attention. People in authority who give final instructions should be heeded. And we have in Jesus Christ not only an an example of himself submitting to baptism, but a command here in the end of Matthew to, as you make disciples, as you take my word forth and tell of me as, as crucified and risen Lord, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't explain that command. He just gave the command. And we draw from that the idea that here again, now, baptism, which was, you know, earlier Old Testament washings and then John's baptism, and now the baptism of Christ in the name of, of the Trinity, rather obviously, and it doesn't need to be explained that much, that it symbolizes the washing of a life, the inward washing of sin, which is the salvation of God. And if Jesus Christ would humbly participate in and then command this thing, at the very least, I must tell you, you dare not disregard this. You dare not lay this aside and say, oh, baptism isn't important. It's important because Christ made it important. And so we, first of all, submit to baptism as a badge of obedience and humility before Christ our Lord. You could call it, if you wish, an initiatory badge of identification with Christ. As many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, said the Apostle Paul. At the very least, that means his name is on them. They've entered into the the promises of the gospel. Now, that doesn't, we'll say, and we'll see in a few minutes, that doesn't necessarily mean that's their be-all and end-all, but they are identified with Christ. And if we neglect or trivialize something as important as Jesus made this, then we are disrespecting him. Now, secondly, another preliminary point I would say to you, and this is something that is often, often missed, regardless of the view you might take towards baptism, whether you think it has to be for believers only and believers only and immersion only, or you take what we call the covenant view that believers' children should be included, no matter what view you have. I say this to you, and it must be heeded. The Bible's specific details regarding baptism are taught 
more by inference than by direct statement. I challenge you to come forth with the verse that says, when you baptize, do this and this and this. You see, that's where the problem is. Jesus didn't give us, in effect, the instruction manual. But he left us fragments and pieces and bits of doctrine that relate to this, that if we would be wise and discerning, we can put together and understand by inference or indirect teaching what he wants us to understand. Now, this is true no matter what your view of baptism is. Folks, I come from a Baptist background. I have great respect for Baptists and all that they are. I was immersed myself, as I told you. But no Baptist has any more direct statements of the Word of God that, in effect, prove his case. He, too, relies on indirect statements and inferences. For, for example, I say this in friendship and in respect, no one can come to me with the single verse of the New Testament and show me beyond any dispute that any individual was ever actually immersed in the New Testament. I'm sorry, you can't do it. It says they went to the river. What did they do in the river? The interesting thing is that all the early works of art from the catacombs of Rome and different mosaics and early paintings all the way up to the Middle Ages predominantly show people maybe standing in a river or standing by a baptismal font with water being poured on their head or dropped on their head the examples of people in artworks of early Christianity actually being immersed are almost absent. Now, you say, well, what does that prove? I don't know what it proves, but it's interesting that the dominant message of the works of art is not of people being immersed, nor is there any verse that shows people being immersed. Now, that's as far as I'm going to wield the sword against the Baptist argument, because I really don't wish to wield the sword. But the point is, we all rely on indirect reasoning and clues in this, and that ought to teach us something. Whether we are Baptist, immersionists, whether we are covenant people, it ought to teach us a humility in our viewpoints and a charitableness towards one another, not a hammer-and-sword approach to try to destroy the other person who also is reasoning from biblical inference just as we are. Thirdly, then, I want to go to our main text of Acts 2.38, and I'm going to just start something here and then pick it up and and elaborate it further next time. But I ask you to see in Acts 2.38 and 39, God's covenant people being trained to accept covenant family rituals. Now, when we try to talk about baptism, we, that is, Presbyterians, we see in it not something that's just denominational, but something we hope is biblical. The covenant of the grace of God that began in the Old Testament and carries forward right into the New. The idea that God was calling out of all nations, Israel was a special example and a special exhibit of that, but all nations were the intent, even in Abraham's time, that he would call out a people and he would say to that people, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will set my signs upon you. And through the development of things in the Old Testament, we saw signs like circumcision, we'll talk about next week, and the Passover. Ways in which his people 
physically identified themselves as the people of God. The covenant is exemplified in Jeremiah 32 where God says, I will be their God and they will be my people that they might fear me forever and their children after them. Now you must have that concept in mind as we see what's going on in Acts 2.38 and 39. For here is Peter speaking to an almost entirely Jewish audience. There may have been some Gentiles present gathering in there just to see what was going on, but he was speaking to people who had come from all kinds of nations as Jewish believers in Jerusalem for a festival, and they were people who had heard a message that had told them that God's Messiah, whom they longed for, was none other than Jesus of Nazareth, who had recently been crucified in that city and now was raised from the dead. They heard that, and the Scripture says they were cut, pierced in their hearts. They were shocked and stunned. And they realized that they had done something awful, or at least their people had done something awful, and they had been witnesses to it, and they thought, oh, no. What do we do about this? And they voiced that, and Peter said, here's what you can do. Repent, and I think most of us are surprised. He didn't say repent and accept Jesus as your personal Savior, as American evangelicals would probably have said. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's something you can do. You can, you can tell God you're deeply sorry for what has taken place and the fact that you are a sinner, and you can step forward and be identified in an act of obedience with this Jesus who has died to be your Messiah. Now, there are people who say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. You know, isn't the case for a, a, what we call a Baptistic or Baptist view very plainly sealed right here in verse 38? Because, look, it says you must first repent and then be baptized. Now, my logic tells me that that means you've got to be a person who has a brain, you know, that can reason and say, all right, I repent, I believe, and so now I will decide to be baptized. Therefore, babies can't be baptized because they can't reason, they can't decide to repent and then be baptized. Well, if that's all we had was verse 38, you'd be right. But could you notice, please, what Peter goes on to say? without even a pause for breath in verse 39. For he goes on to say very plainly, for this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And guess what? Every Israelite in that audience said, bing, aha, covenant language. We understand this. We are used to God saying, I will be your God and the God of your children after you to a thousand generations. And I will fulfill my promises to you if you come to me. These were people, were Israelites. They were used to covenant language that had them responding to God in family solidarity as family units. The head of the family was given a great deal of responsibility in the Old Testament to come and lead his family, to bring his sons to be circumcised, to lead his family in the Passover ritual where the children even asked, what does this mean? What is this about? 
And here's the point. If Peter meant to contradict that long heritage, here was his opportunity to say, hey, you know what you were taught in the Old Testament? Forget all that. That doesn't apply. It's every man for himself now. That isn't what he said. Instead, he spoke in obvious covenant language where the promises of God in salvation were entered into by families. Not that the infant could reason for himself or believe for himself, but they would be included in the action of the covenant head of the home. Now, I'm going to try to develop this idea more next week. I just wanted to lay that much of it before you for now because it has to be here, and I hope to pick that up and go on with it next time. But there is a very obvious sense in which Peter is speaking covenant language here of a promise not only for the believer, but the sign of the promise being put on the believer's child. Now, in the last point today, time is limited here, and I'll wrap this up. But sometimes it's important to say at the outset of trying to understand a, a fairly complicated notion, what something is not as well as what it is. If you, if you get rid of some false ideas then you're closer, at least, to a true idea of anything. That's true in almost any realm of understanding. So consider, fourthly, some of the things we know that baptism is not based on broad biblical doctrine. I have three subpoints here. First of all, baptism is not essential to salvation, nor does it convey in the act of it salvation. Baptism is not essential for salvation, nor does the act of it convey salvation. Yes, we should obey Christ in this act. He commanded it. It's important. But it does not, by having received it or having, quote, done it, give us some greater grasp on God's gift of eternal life. And if we were to face God at the last day not baptized, we cannot say that that would somehow mean we were rejected by God. The classic example, of course, you'll think of it right away, that is always cited here is the repentant thief on the cross. Here was a man who in the very last minutes of his life recognized something that he had not seen or that he had not guessed at as Jesus was dying there, and and he looked to Jesus and called him Lord. And he obviously seemed to cast Jesus in the role of someone as a very unique king before God. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. We don't believe he was mocking Jesus as he apparently had been doing when he was first put on the cross. He was believing something, that this was a king. Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And you can probably remember what Jesus said. Surely, assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. That man was saved by his faith, justifying faith, not by baptism. And it didn't require baptism as some supplement for him to see the kingdom of God that very day, according to the words of Christ himself. Now, this same thing is true. This non-necessity of baptism for salvation is true of all the Old Testament saints. Think about it. David wasn't baptized. Abraham, Moses weren't baptized. None of the great people of the Old Testament. There were some 
baptism and, and rituals of washing that went on that preceded the baptism of John the Baptist, but they were seen as more or less minor parts of you would wash yourself, for example, before you brought a sacrifice up to the temple so that you were physically clean and ritually clean. But no one saw that as their salvation. The people of the Old Testament were saved how? Because they kept the law? No. Because they looked in faith to Christ. In effect, although they didn't know the name of Jesus, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's how anybody was saved in the Old Testament, by looking forward and saying, God is going to bring about salvation. I don't even know exactly how or when he's going to do it, but I'm trusting that he's going to do it. So they looked forward to their covenant Lord, just as we look backward on him, that he's already come. Baptism is not an instrument of salvation. Some people would prefer that we not baptize infants because there are people that do say baptism is somehow an instrument of their salvation. Well, they're wrong. But we're not going to stop doing it because they're wrong. It's a symbol. It's a sign of the grace of God, not a conduit of that grace. And what terrible superstition the other kind of thinking leads to, you know it, that people in the world who have this awful, you know, our folks generally will wait till their children are, oh, it's pretty typical, four, five, eight, nine months old, a year old before they come to be baptized. And I'm fine with that. I don't like to get them at two when they're ready to bite my ear off, but, but six months is fine. But, but you know how in, in some parts of the world, why, they won't wait two days. Oh, my, we've got to get the baby baptized because something might happen. That baby will die, and it won't be saved. Ridiculous. The Bible teaches no such thing. There isn't a shred of biblical evidence to take you in that direction. The burden of proof rests on anybody who comes with that superstitious attitude that God's saving grace is conveyed in the water of baptism to a child or an adult. So first of all, baptism is not essential to salvation, nor is it the instrument of it. Secondly, baptism is never a sign of my accomplishment or my having arrived at some particular point in the Christian life. Now, there is that tendency, at least, and I'm not going to over-exaggerate it, but there is at least the tendency in the idea of baptism being given to adult converts only that it is sort of a mark of completion. Just saw in the paper the other night uh, two or three different articles of young men receiving their Eagle Scout badge, a great achievement in the Boy Scout organization. Well, sometimes I think people, if they're baptized the way I was, you know, they come at 14 or 32 or 75, whatever age, and they say, I've trusted Christ. As far as I'm concerned, that's a completed transaction. I know what I'm doing. I now should be baptized as sort of the capstone to what I have believed. Be very careful of that. Because baptism is not a merit badge. Baptism is a testimony to what God accomplishes in salvation by his sovereign grace. The Bible teaches that it is he who awakens us, that it is he who gives us repentance and faith, and we never have it in ourselves, that that intellectually unable little child is 
just as helpless to receive the grace of God as is the brilliant genius with three PhDs as far as comprehending and responding to the grace of God. Unless the Spirit of God draws you to Christ, you will not come to Christ, the gospel teaches. Ephesians 2.9 says even the faith that you have is the work of God in you. So if there's any glory in water baptism, it belongs to God, the author and the finisher of salvation. Baptism doesn't say, I've arrived. It says, look at the greatness of God who saves when and where and how he sovereignly chooses to do it. Thirdly and finally, baptism never guarantees that the baptized person will be eternally redeemed. It's a sign given in hope. The Scripture says God knows those who belong to him. Now, we think we know because people say, I take Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm resting eternally in him and his finished work, and and they'll come to the elders and make that kind of a profession, and the elders say, good, that sounds like you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And perhaps that person, as as an adult, never having been baptized, is baptized by us, and we say, now here's a believer. But do we absolutely know that? Well, the fact is, we never do with 100% certainty. The Scripture shows us the real possibility of there being apostates among those who have even professed Christ and having been baptized. A a clear example is in Acts 8. Simon the magician watched the wonderful things that were happening in the church. He said, I want in. And he came and apparently professed Christ in some way, and it says he was baptized. Then he turned right around, and and it was very clear that he knew nothing about what he was doing. And in fact, what he wanted was the power of Christianity for his own self-aggrandizement. And Peter turned on him and said, you have no part or interest in this at all. A man that they had just baptized. Baptism wasn't a guarantee that he indeed was a true believer. There can be that instance of apostasy, turning away. All human knowledge about who is truly a believer in Christ is an approximate knowledge, not a perfect knowledge. It's subject to error. A great American theologian who I'm going to teach about in Sunday school, it so happens this morning, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, once wrote a key sentence on this. He said, No one, however rich his display of apparent Christian grace is ever baptized on the basis of infallible knowledge that Christ dwells in him. All baptisms, Warfield said, are inevitably administered on the basis not of certain knowledge, but of presumption. You see, we get criticized. You baptize a little infant. You say, you don't know that infant's going to become a Christian. No, we don't. We're claiming in hope the covenant promises of God that the Christian home is the most wonderful place to come to Christ and the easiest place to come to Christ. But we don't know that 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 little child we baptize might be the worst heretic that could ever be. We also don't know that about the adult who professes faith. All knowledge of who is truly a believer is only approximate and presumptive. Here's a quick summary of what I've said today, and then I close. Baptism is the command of Christ, therefore a symbolic badge of belonging to him. It's a matter of obedience and humility before him and his word. 
Secondly, the particulars about how baptism is done and who should receive it are presented by Scripture in ways of indirect inference and teaching, not by direct statements. Thirdly, that Acts 2.39 appears very clearly to extend the hope of God's redemption to the children of those who came in obedience to repentance and New Testament baptism. And we're going to see, I hope, next time how this is parallel to the Old Testament covenant signs, especially of circumcision. Fourthly, it is a grievous error to ever confuse the outward act with the inward reality that it symbolizes. The act is important, but we do not rely on it. We do not confuse it with the grace that only God can put in the heart. I've only laid a foundation today to build on some more next time. This is not an easy subject to speak about in one, you know, short little devotion or something. There's a lot of things to look at. The gospel of the saving grace of God is so great, we can testify to it in sermons and lessons and spoken words. But God's gospel can also be spoken and preached in silent symbols like biblical baptism. Our Father, we ask you that you'd help us to think humbly on this subject. We're so prone to divide up into camps and defend of you. Make us open to your word and humble before it. Thank you for the reality to which baptism points, the wonderful washing of salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for all who will put faith in him. Help us, Father, to see that, cling to that, and put nothing else in its place. For Jesus' sake, amen.